On R2C2, CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco guide listeners through everything going on in the MLB, NBA, and NFL. They also talk to friends, athletes, and celebrities about the world of sports and much more. Check out R2C2 with CC Sabathia and Ryan Rucco on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The MLB season is in full swing, and you can step up to the plate with FanDuel. America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub, filtered by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, bet the live same-game parlays for every MLB game and track your game and bets live with box scores and play-by-play. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of Major League Baseball. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah. A toast to breakfast. Coming up on New York, New York, we're a week into the baseball season, so you know that means we got all sorts of overreactions. Except there are a couple regarding the New York Yankees that are fair and justified. By the way... The Mets won probably the cheapest game that you're ever going to see. Plus, Kevin Durant is back on the basketball court. I know, what a sight. What a concept. Mike Tannenbaum will join us. Listen to voicemails are coming up. Sam Panianovich on baseball and the Masters and how to handicap it. All that and more. New York, New York, right here. Ringer Podcast Network, coming up next. All righty, let's roll, baby. It is episode three of New York, New York, right here on the Ringer Podcast Network. And I can't believe it's episode three already. Time flies when you're having fun. And folks, it is sure nice to have wall-to-wall baseball to react to. And there's nothing like a week of baseball where the overreactions are going to be above and beyond, where people are going to get all sorts of crazy But what you try to do in the first week or two is kind of mix in and out what's legitimate about concerns and what's completely over the top. Now, we're doing this podcast Thursday evening, fresh off the Mets home opener, and as weird and as wacky and as bizarre a win as you're going to have against the Miami Marlins. Now, look, Jeff McNeil pimping a home run to start off the bottom half of the ninth inning. There's nothing fluky in that. And maybe Louis Rojas and the Mets, who have not exactly distinguished themselves swinging the bats over the first couple of games. And I get it. The numbers for McNeil, the first four or so games, haven't been great either. Newsflash, though. Jeff McNeil is one of your best hitters. Period. End of discussion. The idea of Jeff McNeil hitting seventh in the Mets lineup is a joke. He's too good a hitter to be banished to the bottom of the order like that. So I hope that that stare down into the dugout, and I hope that bat flip, which I love, by the way, because if I hit a drive on the golf course like that, 
or I hit a ball out of City Field, the Yankee Stadium like that. I know some people don't like the celebrations. Nonsense. I'd be pimping it till the cows come home. All sorts of bat flips all day and every day. That bat flip was maybe a little bit more demonstrative though because maybe it was a message to the manager. Hey, move me up in the lineup. But at the end of this game, for the Mets to win the way that they did with Michael Conforto basically leaning his elbow across the strike zone and getting plunked and ending the game in walk-off fashion, it, you felt dirty if you won that game for the Mets. Now you take it, you don't apologize for it. I've seen some weird and some bizarre walk-off wins, wild pitches. I, I was at the Subway Series game when Luis Castillo dropped the pop-up and Teixeira busted his butt around third base and ended up scoring. I was there for all that stuff. This might take the cake. Maybe not to Castillo levels, but leaning an elbow over the middle of the strike zone. How that play is not reviewable is an absolute joke. It blows my mind that you cannot, in this day and age, review something that is so simple and correct. And if I were Don Mattingly in the Miami Marlins, Conforto would be wearing one in the back this weekend. If I were running a team, he'd absolutely be wearing one. But for Conforto, look, with the way he's been swinging it in the first few games of this year, that was the absolute blessing. Like, if you were watching that game in the bottom half of the ninth inning, folks, who would pitch to Francisco Lindor in that spot? Why would you? That was obvious. Welcome. And Conforto, you got to understand this now with him. He's coming off a really good 2020, but he's in a position where a lot of his at-bats, and especially his early season at-bats, are going to be heavily scrutinized. Why? He's a free agent at the end of the year. He is a Boris client who is going to command a ton of money if he performs the way he did last year. Now, if he plays like that, you're going to have no problem paying him north of $100 million. But if he's in 240 with 25, 26 home runs, you're giving him five years at $110, $120 million? And that's where the remorse may come in for the Mets not going the extra mile in signing George Springer, a guy who I thought would have fit the team perfectly you know, in the wintertime. But the Mets made a choice. They said, we like Conforto more than Springer in the long term. And that's going to be the guy we prioritize. But the end of that game was just, LOL, funny. If you're the Mets, you take it. Here's another big concern, though. As good as Taiwan Walker was, the Met bullpen, the first couple of games in Philadelphia, it's troubling signs. I haven't loved what I've seen from May. The fact that Batances is hurt, you got to wonder. If Batances is just totally cooked, Diaz looked good in his first outing. That's an encouraging sign. But do the Mets have enough arms in that bullpen that you can count on throughout the year? That's going to be a storyline to watch. Now, I think from a Yankee standpoint, folks, I may have to stop going to games because I've gone to two games so far here in 2021. And the common theme and the common thread is that the Yankees will go to extra innings and will find a way to lose in extra innings in the most excruciating way and the most frustrating way imaginable. So maybe I should just stop going the rest of the year. Maybe I'm better off. Maybe the team is better off if I don't go. <laughs> just kidding. Yankees are going to have to find a way to turn that baby around with me in the building because... I'm there. Sink or swim, baby. I'm there. 
But I was not in a good mood leaving Yankee Stadium last night for a couple of different reasons. Number one, Gleyber Torres at shortstop. We talk about trying to figure out what's real and what's not when it comes to early season storylines. The storyline of Gleyber Torres not being able to handle the shortstop position, it's alarming. There's no other way around it. Gleyber Torres right now looks skittish at shortstop. He has no confidence at shortstop. And the Yankees need him to be able to handle the position. He cost the Yankees the game yesterday. Yeah, I know the Yankees had 12 hits and they scored only two runs. And yeah, they could have done more with runners in scoring position. And they could have gotten a couple more big hits. That's true. But when you got two outs in an extra inning, a runner on second base, throw the ball at first base, for goodness sakes. Is that asking too much? And in my seats, I could see him basically, you know, double clutching, going to the glove, and not firing the ball across the diamond of first base. The Yankees need Gleyber Torres to handle that position, and I have serious doubts if defensively he's up to par. Because last year he wasn't. And you look at what Didi Gregorius has done for the Phillies the last year and change. You could do it over again if you were Brian Cashman and the Yankees. You tell me you wouldn't want Didi back? Last year he went for no money. Got a reasonable contract this year. I think this Yankee team will look a lot better if Didi was at short. Gleyber Torres is back where he was in 2019 at second base, and DJ LeMay is at first. I know that means bye-bye Luke Voigt, but he's, to me, way too similar to other guys that you have in this lineup, specifically Judge and Stanton. Too many of the same sort of hitter. So Glaber's defense is a legitimate problem a week in. I'll tell you what else is a problem. Aaron Judge being able to stay on the field. Here we go again. We all know the guy can ball out when he plays. Look at what he did the other night. Couple hits, hit a moonshot halfway up the bleachers. There's no denying the talent of Aaron Judge. But the fact that Five games into a year? He's dealing with soreness? Five games into the year! He's not 37. He's not, you know, 75, hobbling around the golf course because his side or his oblique and his hip and this and that, it's hurting. He's under the age of 30. I'm exhausted talking about it, but I think I kind of speak on behalf of most Yankee fans who are dialed in right now. They're exhausted talking about it. We all love Aaron Judge. He's charismatic. He's likable. He's the face of the New York Yankees. And I think the Yankees want every reason to go and extend him when his contract is up next year. I'm going to have serious doubts if he's going to go through yet another injury-plagued season. So now the Yankees will go to Tampa this weekend. And... Anybody who maybe is unfamiliar with the dynamic between the Yankees and the Rays, here's a little refresher. Here are the crib notes. The Yankees never win at Tropicana Field. Never, never, never win at Tropicana Field. To the point where if they get one win this weekend, I'm probably going to be okay with it. Because they never play well down there. Never. And I don't care if it's Rich Hill, Chris Archer, who cares? The Rays, they, they infuriate you in that building. But it's artificial surface. Am I counting on the fact that Aaron Judge is going to be in the lineup on Friday? I'm not. 
And with the way the Yankees have kind of handled Judge over the years and the way they've been off base when it comes to their injury timetables, I'm not going to be stunned if I find out Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they put him on the injured list. They're trying to get ahead of it. Aaron Boone told you they're trying to get ahead of it. It better be for a day. It better be, all right, he's off Wednesday, he's off Thursday, he can play on Friday. Because if I wake up and I don't see Aaron Judge in the lineup, yeah, I'm expecting the worst. I am fearing the worst. And it's because of the fact that this is an injury-prone player. Can't shake that. Those are two concerns with the Yankees. Totally valid. That's not overreacting a week into the year because they are themes that we've seen over the last few years. Glaber's defense the last two years? Judge, ever since he got hit by a Jacob Junis pitch in 2018, this has been the narrative. Can't stay on the field. It's killing my fantasy team. I know it's killing Simmons' fantasy team. The fact that Bill Simmons is actually showing some regard for a Yankee player should tell you something. I I was shocked to get that alert yesterday. I had to break the bad news to him. Yeah, here we go again. So before we get to the former GM of the New York Jets, and we got a ton of football with Mike Tannenbaum, draft stuff, his career. We got our gambling look ahead for the Masters. How to bet baseball. Sam Panionovich over at Nesson is going to join us. Before we get to the batch of listener voicemails, the gang thought it would be a good idea to kind of hit us right out of the gate, leadoff style, like Soriano used to do back in the day, like Ricky Henderson used to do back in the day, like Omeyu is more than capable of doing. How about a leadoff voicemail right out of the gate? JJ, what up? It's Brian from Jersey. I called last time, and look, I'm going to be a regular, and I feel like a dick. I don't know if I congratulate you, but congrats on the ringer, bro. Like, you already know the ringer is the shit. Now, with that said, I'm a Yankees and Giants fan, and that's great, but I, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about the Knicks fans right now because I'm a diehard Nets fan, and you guys want to act like the big bad wolf all these years, and great, have your New York title. I don't give a shit, but don't come out and be like, oh, we almost beat the Nets twice. We should have had two wins. I want to hear this bullshit. We don't even have our two best players, and yeah, granted it's not fair or not, we have those three guys on our team. So y'all want to be the big bad wolf all these years? You stay the big bad wolf. I don't give a shit. Stop acting like a pouty little person here. All right? That's all I got to say. Let's go fucking Nets. I don't give a shit about this Knicks shit. All right? I, I respect it. I get it. My boys are Knicks fans. I don't mean to be disrespectful, you know, but Miami Yankees fan. I get the logic, but damn. Be the big bad wolf if you want to be the big bad wolf. Yeah, I understand, Brian. You are upset because your team doesn't get the love. Your team doesn't get the respect. They've been little brother in town for the last, I don't know, 40, 50, 60, 70 years, whatever the dynamic may be. Um, I think even winning a title is not necessarily going to change anything. I hate to say that to you. I hate to be the guy to throw cold water right in your face. We know the Nets are better than the Knicks. We know the Nets are going to go deeper in the playoffs than the Knicks. Yeah, right now they are being held to very, very different standards. Be aware of that. You don't have to like it, but you got to acknowledge it. Listen to voicemails are coming up. We got some gambling stuff coming up, and we'll get a sense for what the Jets are going to do it to, what this draft's looking like, and the career of ESPN analyst, former Jet GM, former Dolphin 
VP of Football Operations, Mike Tannenbaum, next here on New York, New York on the Ringer Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. Welcome back, New York, New York, Ringer Podcast Network, show three. And I figure we bring in a guy who knows the New York market very well. Time with the New York Jets. Time with my beloved Miami Dolphins. And now he's a rock star on television. I, I cannot believe how seamlessly he has made that transition to the dark side into the media world. Mike Tannenbaum, ESPN. What's happening, Co? I'm Mr. T. How we doing, man? JJ three. How come I couldn't be like you know either the gold or silver medalist? You know, well, I, I was gonna I, say, listen, you are our first football guest, so I, I, I give you credit on that note. You know, we we ended up getting CC Sabathia out of the gate. Then we had a terrible Met loss, so we had one of our Met guys on, Sean Fennessy, who was ranting and raving like crazy. But Mr. T, I think the third spot is is not too shabby, my friend. Yeah, you know, JJ, I'll be a bronze medalist. You know, third place and uh, live to fight another day. Amen to that. Now, for you personally, I always am curious for guys who spend so much time in a front office and then they transition into doing something different. Media, Mike, you're very comfortable. You know your stuff. You're charismatic. You're into it. Was this something you kind of envisioned or did it kind of just find you as far as like making that shift and making that transition? You know, JJ, I really appreciate it. I think it's like um, anything you do in life, you got to, you know, Dan Quinn's a really good friend of mine, former head coach of the Falcons and now with the Cowboys. He has a great expression, which is be where your feet are. And uh, I just try to be the best broadcaster I could be. I hired a broadcast coach. I work really hard at it. And I really, and I say this uh, in all sincerity, like in football, I was around people like Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick and at ESPN, I'm with the best of the best and they raise the bar and make me work really, really hard. And um, I don't know, it's been a real privilege and uh, have greatly enjoyed it. All right. Now that you're covering this 2021 NFL draft and you think about all your years in the war room, Mike, is the biggest change with the quarterback position in the sense that, you know, a guy like Sam Donald, for example, in 15, 20, 25 years ago, I feel like a team like the New York Jets might be giving him another year. But with the way the rookie contract and the rookie wage scale works out, and then obviously their situation where they're picking two in the draft, it's a no-brainer. You have the opportunity to go and get a guy, let's say, like Zach Wilson. You got to go and go get Zach Wilson. But that kind of shift from having patience with that position to now where, look, you don't have it in your second year. You don't have it by your third year. You got to find yourself a new quarterback. Has that, in your opinion, been, you know, the biggest shift within front offices? You know, JJ, I think it's a totally fair point. Um, It just, um, what concerns me is like, 
someone like Sam Darnold may go on and play really good football for somebody else like Carolina. You know, Tom Landry was a big influence on Bill Parcells, my mentor. He was talking about like three years. And I think we got to be concerned because I think you're making a great point. Like when you look at someone like Drew Brees that goes on to the Saints, Ryan Tannehill. Now, Ryan Tannehill played good football in Miami. He's obviously playing even better in Tennessee. That's what's going to keep me up of, up at night, JJ, if I'm Joe Douglas. What happens if Sam Darnold outplays um, Zach Wilson? Yeah, I like that uh, Tannehill comparison, quite frankly, because to me, you look at a guy who had ability, first round pick, he goes to the next destination and he's in a better position to succeed. I mean, Ryan Tannehill didn't have Derrick Henry. He didn't have Taylor Wan. Mike Vrabel had a tough-minded defense. Now, all of a sudden, he's a top-10 quarterback. Did you look at him specifically, Mike, when you were in Miami and say, this is a guy who's got a chance to be a top-10 quarterback? Or did it just need to be different scenario, different situation for him to kind of see that through? No, JJ. I walked in the building and I looked at Dennis Hickey, the then general manager, and Joe Philbin, the then head coach. I'm like, we need to extend him right now because he's a great player. We could win a lot of games with him, and that's what we did. And when he was healthy, we went to the playoffs. He did a lot of great things for us. And, um, you know, one of the things I think where we fell short was we didn't have enough depth behind him. But he has been a good player his whole career. He's taken it to a whole nother level with Tennessee. Okay. Jets now. This has been a franchise, Mike, basically since you left the building, they've been spinning their wheels now for a decade. They've had a bunch of different quarterbacks. They've had a bunch of different head coaches. Do you finally now look at the franchise with Joe Douglas as the GM, Robert Sala as the head coach, number two pick? You think they're set up the best they've been since you and Rex were rocking the building? Um, I think they have a chance from a standpoint of it needs to take a minute for this plan to take hold. So I think it goes to your point about being patient. I love Makai Becton. I thought some of the other offensive line last year, Van Roten, George Fant, didn't play as well as maybe they had hoped. Um, Denzel Mims, I like when he's healthy. So I think the key now is to bootstrap Robert Sala and Zach Wilson together and let them grow and develop. They're going to stumble. They're going to skin their knee. You always do in New York. But fortify the lines, give it a couple of years, and hopefully the results will be there. Wilson, he's not Trevor Lawrence in my eyes, Mike. I think he's got a chance to be damn good. I'm all aboard the Trevor Lawrence bandwagon. Watched him with Clemson, sunshine, the whole deal. Do you see any similarities, Mike, to Wilson and what Herbert did for the Chargers last year and Allen a couple of years ago because he's a big boy, he's got a big arm. You know the NFL is a copycat type of league. Do you see any uh, similarities with Wilson to those other two studs? Yeah, he's a little bit smaller. Um, I love Justin uh, Herbert. He was my number one quarterback last year. He's a bigger man. He reminds me of Ben Roethlisberger. I've seen him in person a number of times. He's a much bigger frame guy. He, Josh Allen, Justin Herbert, Ben Roethlisberger, those are heavyweights. Those are guys that can knock you out with one punch. Zach Wilson, his body type is much more akin to someone like Aaron Rodgers, He's more 6'2", 218. He changed his diet a little bit this year. He got a little bit stronger. He, If he has one concern is he's not as big as some of those other guys, but he's a great athlete, not a good athlete, and he really has uncanny ability to make great, accurate throws down the field, and his style of play is really where the NFL is heading. Is he, in your eyes, in your opinion, the clear-cut number two quarterback in this draft? 100%, not even close. I think he's much better than Sam Darnold. 
I would have considered holding on to Sam if I was the Jets for a couple of reasons. One, you can't have enough depth in that position. And the other thing too, JJ, we got to remember is you, we don't know what the COVID rules are going to be. So let's put Zach Wilson at a chance to be successful in terms of if he's not ready on opening day, you know, going back a generation, Chad Payton sat for two years before he played for the Jets. And obviously that served him incredibly well. So if I'm New York, I want as much depth as, as possible. And ironically, maybe it's Teddy Bridgewater, uh, who's now a surplus in Carolina, but um, I want to make sure I have a good veteran quarterback. Okay. The other quarterbacks in this draft, assuming it goes Lawrence one, Wilson two to the Jets. How does Mike Tannenbaum shake out Mac Jones, who played in Saban's system in Alabama and played great, lit up everybody all year. Trey Lance, he didn't see a ton of. And then Justin Fields, who had some really great games and had some very mediocre games. Who's the third quarterback on your big board? Yeah, I'll take uh, Mac Jones because I think his accuracy is really uh, unusually great. And not just from a standpoint, J.J., of completion percentage, but really fundamentally from a standpoint of they had over 2,400 yards after catch at Alabama. And again, look, I know about Waddle and Devontae Smith, but you have to throw it precisely where they can make plays after the uh, ball is caught. And I think Mac Jones has some rare ability. Trey Lance to me is someone that's really special. If you and I owned a team and said, you know what, we just want to do what's best for our franchise for the next 10 years, Trey Lance may be our guy. Physically, he has as much skill as anybody in the draft, including Trevor Lawrence. He's thrown one interception in college, but he only played one game this year. So that's why there's a little positive concern for Trey Lance. And I do like fields, um, but against Indiana and Northwestern, two really good Big Ten defenses, he struggled. Mike, I have to be honest. Last year, and you know I'm a big Dolphin guy, I was banging the table for Tua. Left and right, left and right, left and right. And after one year, I got to take the L if I'm comparing him to Justin Herbert. I think Tua will be fine. I think they're going to put players around him. But if you were in that Dolphin war room last year, would you have been pounding the table saying we have to take Justin Herbert? Or do you get the sense, Mike, because they were looking for a quarterback with charisma and obviously Tua had the star power going back to his days at Alabama. The Dolphins, because they've been searching for that guy since Dan Marino, just couldn't pass that up. Yeah, I was pounding the table for Justin Herbert for Cincinnati, for Washington. I think he's going to be a superstar. Um, I think he has a high floor and a historic ceiling because he is incredibly athletic. He's the smartest guy in last year's draft. He's uber competitive. And if he had played the SEC and not on the West Coast where a lot of his games were on at 10 o'clock or later, he could have been the first pick in the draft. So I like Tua. I think Tua has a chance to be good. He has great anticipation, good ball placement, gets the ball in his hands pretty quick. My concerns with Tua is athletically he's not as good as these other guys. And he isn't just – he's not as big. And again, J.J., like – Football is a contact sport, and give me the bigger man over the little man every time. And, look, there's some exceptions like the Drew Breeses of the world, but over time, give me Josh Allen, give me Roethlisberger, give me Herbert. Is it now to a point, Mike, at quarterback, where you either have to have a monster body type and a monster arm, or you got to just be crazy mobile and crazy athletic? Like, is that the point now when you're looking at quarterbacks? They have to either have one of those attributes or the other, or you're going to have serious hesitation about, dare I say, taking them or drafting them? Yeah, um, I would say the only other exception, I agree with everything you say, JJ. The only thing I would add to that would be um, 
if you have a microprocessor like Tom Brady, where he just he's going to annihilate you pre-snap, you know, for all those years, you know, with Eric Mangini, Rex Ryan, Bob Sutton, on and on and on. They always used to say, hey, let's make Tom Brady make a decision after the ball is snapped because he's so deadly in knowing exactly where he wants to go with the ball. And that's what that's one of his many superpowers. You were the GM of the New York Jets competing against Tom Brady. How wild is it, Mike, that he's still doing this number one and he's winning championships other places? Like, do you like look at him and say, man, what in the world is going on here? Yeah, it was really funny. We did a segment on Get Up about uh, where will the NFL be in another 10 years? Just talking about like, uh, you know, the TV deals or these long-term 10-year deals. And we're saying like, who's going to win the Super Bowl in 2032? And I said it was going to be Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers being the Mexico City Seahawks. So I think, you know, what Tom Brady's done is historic. He deserves a ton of credit. He's um, the all-time best for a reason. You won a lot of games when you were running the New York Jets. You made it to back-to-back AFC title games. And, Mike, uh, I'm going to admit this to you now because I think we're a little comfortable. I hated your teams. I hated them to no end because they were really good. They were tough. They were physical. They played really good defense. And came oh so close in back-to-back years. In your opinion, what was the better team of the two? Was it the first one that got hot at the right time and played Indianapolis and won at San Diego? Or was it the team that went into Indy and went into New England and beat Manning and Brady in consecutive games? Yeah, it was definitely the latter, JJ. That first team, I felt like we were good, heading in the right direction. As you said, we got hot. That second team was a great team. And I think what really validated that was what happened the year after. We had the best team in football with Favre and that nucleus of the team. If if Brett Favre didn't get hurt, and, you know, Damian Woody talks about this a lot, and I really respect D. Wood's opinion. You know, that was our best team of the three with Favre, um, excuse me, Favre the year before. Um, he, he really would have given us a chance to win a Super Bowl. Uh, that nucleus remained the same. And it is what it is. Like we had a great run with a lot of good players, but to answer your question, that 2010 team was better than the 09 team, but that 08 team was really good before Favre got hurt. That's a great point with that 08 team. That 08 team, remember they went into Tennessee and you know this, Mike, you were a part of it. Undefeated Tennessee won the week prior. They beat the New England Patriots. Was that a team, Mike, that just basically ran out of gas because Brett's shoulder completely fell apart? Was that the deal? Yeah, you know what was even, I'll never forget, was Jeff Fisher. We're playing Tennessee in Tennessee. They're undefeated. He jumped out of a plane and landed uh, on the field pregame. And that really pissed us off. Like, hey, like, don't take us for granted. And we spoke them that day. Lavernius Coles had a great game. And we we really, I think we left that steam thinking, like, if that's the best team in the NFL and they're undefeated, like, here we go. Okay. The team, 09-2010, back-to-back title games. After that, Mike, if there's one thing you could have done differently as an executive in trying to change the fabric of the team, maybe a move you wouldn't have made or would have made, is there one that kind of sticks out? Yeah, probably like a hundred of them. But, you know, a couple of them, I would say uh, moving on from Jericho Cotri because Jericho was a guy that solved problems for us. And one of the mistakes I think you have in the front office is like you look at things very objectively. But Jericho was a nucleus guy for us. Um, he had attributes you couldn't see, and uh, that was a mistake. Bringing in Tim Tebow obviously didn't work out either. It wasn't good for Tim. It wasn't good for the team, and obviously that caused a lot of distractions. Mike, so, was that uh, pushed on you by ownership to bring in Tebow? 
yeah, you know, that was one of those things where we all felt good about it. And that really, from a football standpoint, JJ, was really about, hey, we lost Brad Smith. We thought Tim could do a lot of jobs. My miscalculation, candidly, was we had Brian, Brett Favre, and I'm like, hey, we can handle Favre. We can handle this. But Tim really just was a unique person in terms of everybody has a strong opinion about Tim Tebow. Some love him, some don't. Um, and it was just, you know, that was just very combustible in New York. And that probably did put Mark Sanchez to the best position to be successful. Well, and Sanchez is a guy, the first two years, Mike, it's amazing. You know, some of the quarterbacks he beat, uh, a bunch of them are going to end up in Canton, Ohio when it's all said and done. Manning's going to be there. He's already inducted. Brady is going to be there at some point. Phillip Rivers is probably going to be there. Was it the idea of that, you know, you guys asked more of Mark and he couldn't handle it? Is it team building? Like, what went wrong for Mark Sanchez when he was this up-and-coming quarterback that had this moxie and could win on the road and, you know, was pulling games out of thin air? And then, you know, you look at the last two years of his Jet tenure and clearly wasn't the same guy. Yeah. Um, I think it was a lot of little things. Some injuries got to him. I think, had, you know, too many turnovers uh, in, in opportune times. Um, he did a lot of great things with us, and he's an incredible person, still a good friend of mine. Um, just uh, I think it was a little bit of everything, and that's the difference, J.J., between being great and just being okay in the NFL. And, um, you know, I just think injuries and turnovers really ultimately were what hurt him long term. Is your favorite draft pick all time Darrell Revis? Uh, I feel validated about the process for Darrell Revis in terms of we, we spent so much time on him. We spent time with his relationship with his mother, how much his mother meant to him, how respectful he was of her. Um, and we knew how competitive he was. And we had a great sense of there was two other corners in the first round that we liked a lot. Leon Hall from the University of Michigan, Aaron Ross from the University of Tennessee. But clearly we thought he was the best. And um, I just feel like from an organization process standpoint, we got it right for the right reasons. Well, you drafted a Hall of Famer, but not your favorite pick, Mike. Do you have a favorite pick? You know, uh, boy, that's a great question. Um, uh, you know, probably the Curtis Martin transaction was probably like the most rewarding because I learned firsthand from Coach Parcells who I meant to build a team, and we didn't need a running back. We had a good one in Adrian Morrell. We were desperate for a good quarterback, and Curtis just changed the franchise for, you know, a decade because – of who he was and his stature and his work ethic, his ability to play hurt, the standards he set. And um, I didn't realize I, I saw things much more, you know, systematically just in terms of, you know, we had a running back. We don't need a running back and building a team. There's so much more to it than just that. What was the greatest lesson you learned in your years being around Bill Parcells? You know, Bill, Bill's not a what you see is what you get guy. You know, Bill has a sense of humor. Bill um, cares deeply about people. Um, but Bill ultimately is a thorough uh, – and him and Coach Belichick are similar in this regard. Like, I was 27 years old. It was an opportunity of a lifetime, JJ. And I could walk in with any idea I wanted, but he would blast you if it wasn't well thought out, if it wasn't researched. And – you know, there was days I, I literally would walk into his office at 5.15 in the morning with a note saying, like, I apologize. I'll do better next time. Like, I think he, think he was going to fire me. And then 48 hours later, like, I remember him walking in my office with 100 Hooters wings because we got a big signing. And I felt like I was on top of the world. And, you know, he, and he was just that's what it was like to work for him. Like, the lows were so hard because you didn't want to let him down. 
but the highs were so high and, you know, I'm still proud to call him a friend to this day. And, you know, he's a deep thinker. He has really interesting takes on, you know, race relations in our country and how to, you know, work with others and everyone should be your brother. And he, he's really a remarkable human being well beyond just a great coach. If you could buy stock right now, Mike, in one NFL team, I give you the NFL and you could be Mike Tannenbaum, GM, day trader extraordinaire. Who's the team you're buying stock in? Yeah, you know, the easy answer would be Kansas City because they got it. Yeah, you know, you know what? I'm excluding them, Mike. They're out. They got Mahomes. That's not fair. There's no fun in that. Well, JJ, is this like a 10-year return? Or are we buying like a, How about a five? Like- I'll take a three to five-year return, Mike. That's okay. Three to five years is good. Three to five years? I'm going Justin Herbert. I'm going L.A. Chargers. You know, I'm betting on him being the next transformational superstar. I think they've done enough on offense, not quite enough. Um, I don't know Brandon Staley well, but I heard great things about him. They got not, They have some pressure players on defense for Joey Bosa. Um, they'll need a couple more. But uh, if Herbert's the player, I believe he will be. Let's go with the Chargers. And Mike, for years, I grew up listening to you on Mike Francesa's show. So for me to actually refer to you as Mr. T right now, is Mike Francesa the only guy in planet Earth who refers to Mike Tannenbaum as Mr. T? I got to know. No, no, there's a couple of others. So uh, Coach Parcells, he'll 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 still call me that. So uh, not many, but JJ, you can call me whatever you like. You know, just the fact that I'm on your podcast means quite quite a bit to me. Oh, listen, you're the best, Mike. Thank you so much for the time, man. We really appreciate it. I'm sure we'll catch up as we get closer to the year. And you got to be fired up for this draft. Actually, one last note before we get out of here: take the quarterbacks out of it. Who is Mike Tannenbaum's favorite first round player? Take all the quarterbacks, exclude them, throw them out the window. Give me a guy to watch for. Yeah, you know, the easy answer would be uh, Kyle Pitts, the tight end from Florida. I'm going to go with Patrick Sertan from Alabama. We talked about the aforementioned Darrell Rivas, JJ. I think this guy really reminds me of Rivas. He's impeccable character, great competitor, great measurables. And I think Patrick Sertan is going to be a great player. Mike, ton of fun, man. Continued success. Keep up the good work, all right? Yeah, and best of luck with your new opportunity. I know you're going to crush it. Oh, my man. That's a great Mike Tannenbaum. We got voicemails coming up. We got tweets coming up. New York, New York, right here. Ringer Podcast Network. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier, thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive, or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side-by-side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. 
So before we get to a couple of listener voicemails, a couple of Nick Net thoughts. First with the Nets. Hallelujah. Thank heavens. Kevin Durant is back. It feels like we've been waiting an eternity to see Kevin Durant back on the floor. And look, we all know when he plays, we're talking about one of the five best players in the league. We're probably talking about one of the three best players in the league. I think the question for Brooklyn now moving forward is going to be this. What kind of game shape can Kevin Durant be in by the time we hit the postseason? Is he going to be able to let it rip? play back-to-backs, and do all the stuff that you need to do in order to go deep in the postseason, in order to win an NBA title. It's all well and good with load management throughout the course of the regular season. That's why, like, if I'm a Net fan, I'm not that upset over the fact that Durant has missed time. The team has continued to win games. They're right where they need to be in the Eastern Conference. And Durant's coming off. A torn Achilles two years ago. So I want him at a point where, okay, the body is right, the mind is right, the spirit is right, and now he can go let it rip and play a ton when we need him to in short postseason series, taking on a Philly, taking on a Miami or Milwaukee or whatever the case may be. I thought all in all, watching him on Wednesday night, he looked okay. He looked like Kevin Durant. And that's the one positive I keep harping on when it comes to Durant this year. When you have seen him on the court, and I know it hasn't been often, but when he's been on the court, there have been plenty of times I've watched him. I'm like, yep, that's that same old Kevin Durant to me. Post moves, jump shot, Slim Reaper, baby. From that standpoint, I wouldn't be worried about Durant. It's about the wear and tear and whether or not he can handle that wear and tear over a long period of time. Kind of crammed into a bunch of games. Now from a Knicks standpoint, this team plays hard every night. They fall short again against the Boston Celtics. I'll tell you a great positive with this Knicks season. R.J. Barrett and the jump that he has made from his first year to his second year, it's impressive. And if R.J. Barrett can continue to knock down the outside shot, it is going to take his game to a whole nother level. Now, remember with Barrett, he is always going to have that stigma attached to him that he was the third pick in a draft that featured Zion Williamson and John Moran. And in many ways, that's unfair to R.J. Barrett. These are two, like, unicorns, if you will. Barrett's going to be a damn good NBA player. He's tough. He works hard. He finishes around the rack. Seeing him hit the outside shot, even in a losing effort last night, it's encouraging. Super, super encouraging. I'm buying stock on R.J. Barrett's career. Remember, this is a kid who legally can't even go and buy himself a beer. If you want to go get some Kona Big Waves or my Sam's that I'm going to be drinking after the show, he'd have to get, J.J., can you go pick those bad boys up for me? That's the reality with R.J. Barrett. I'm still a believer. Absolutely. If anything, this year I'm doubling down on my belief on R.J. Barrett. It's going to have a very, very good NBA career. What you were seeing, though, with the Knicks, as they've lost a couple of games now and they've fallen under the 500 mark, this is a team that got so much out of the little amount of talent that they have. They're starting to go up a notch in competition, and it's been a struggle for them.
They've done a great job all year of beating the teams they're supposed to beat. Unfortunately, they have a bunch of teams on the schedule down the stretch that they're not supposed to beat. That sounds really simplistic and really elementary, but it's reality. They're not that good. Anybody who was suckering themselves into the fact that the Knicks are like some great top four, top five team in the Eastern Conference, I don't care how mediocre the bottom half of that conference may be, they're not that good. Tom Thibodeau has basically been working his magic, waving a magic wand all year to churn each and every last ounce out of what they bring to the table. Just make sure you're in the playoffs. I'd love to avoid the playing series, but even if they're in the playing series, Put the expectations into perspective to what you thought they were going to be before the start of this year. Because I thought before the start of this year, this was a terrible 25-win basketball team. And they've been much better than that. Now, I expect from Judge and Torres having their issues, the end of the Met game here on Thursday, all sorts of shenanigans going on. I think the voicemails are going to be off the rails today. So I am mentally preparing for that. Hopefully, it will bring out the best in me. Who's in the two spot? JJ, your buddy Rob here from Staten Island. You know, I'm a diehard Mets fan. After what Conforto pulled today, I don't know. I'm not happy with it. You know what? I'd rather see you go down swinging, which he's been going down swinging anyway for the first four games and leaving a ton of runners on base. But to stick your arm out so blatantly to take a hit by pitch, I'm not happy with that as a Mets fan. I don't agree with it. My question is, you're a Miami Marlins pitcher. Next time Conforto steps in that box, are you drilling him in the ribs with one? I know I would. JJ, all the best, brother. You deserve everything you got there, buddy. So stay well, all right? And I'm, uh, I'm glad uh, you got that job there. You deserve it. Take care. Robbie on fire, and we're sharing a brain. I'm pitching for the Miami Marlins Saturday. Conforto's getting one in the back first at bat. That's me. That's my old school nature. I know some say the bean brawl type stuff doesn't accomplish anything. That's where the old school me comes out. I know I was mocking the lefty-righty bullshit. We talked about that. That might be put on a t-shirt by the time we wrap up this podcast in 40 years. Lefty-righty bullshit. Might have to put a copyright on that. But I couldn't stand what Conforto did. But if you're a Mets fan, don't apologize. A win is a win. It may be Bush League. You have every right to be upset if you're the Miami Marlins, but from a Mets standpoint, you've been struggling to score runs. You were down a run in the bottom half of the ninth inning. McNeil ties it. Conforto, yeah, he leaned into one. Put that elbow right over the strike zone. Shouldn't be allowed to happen. It did. Take the win and move on. Hey, I took the Jeffrey Mayer win and moved on back in 1996. Stinks a little different. Home opener here, April 2021, but take it and move on. Okay. We're moving on. What's next? Hey, John. What's up? It's Mario from Westchester. Good luck on the new podcast. I hope all the best for you. Can you explain to me how the fuck the Yankees end up with 11 hits and only score five runs against the Orioles? It blows my mind. Thanks, bro. Best of luck. Take care. Mario, it's been a whole lot of frustrating times for the New York Yankee lineup. Now, I'm going to talk to you off the ledge a little bit. They're going to score a ton of runs. They're going to pound teams throughout the year. They've gotten off to sluggish starts. Last night's game, it wasn't like the Yankees had these grand chances where it was second and third, nobody out, 
runner on third and one out. You know, those golden opportunities with runners in scoring position. It was more the two-out variety. They'd get a couple of two-out hits. They couldn't get the big two-out hit. Now, they did in the eighth inning. Gio Urshela hit one up the gap, scored Mike Tauchman. Kyle Higashioka got one going to opposite field. Beautiful slide by Tyler Wade to go and tie the game. They got a couple of clutch hits from guys down at the bottom of the order. But why did they struggle to score runs? It's a simple fact. This is a team that is heavily reliant on the home run. When they hit home runs, they're a bully team. They flex. They're having fun in the dugout. They're doing this. They're doing that. And all is right in Yankee land. When the Yankees don't hit home runs, newsflash, they don't win. That's what concerns me about October. You face better pitching than what we're seeing with the Baltimore Orioles. Are you going to be able to get those big hits in big situations? And let me tell you something. The Yankees better stick it to Tampa this weekend. I am so sick and tired of the Yankees going down to Tropicana Field and embarrassing themselves against the race. It happens way too often for my liking. Way too often. And the Rays last year punked the Yankees. You know, after the year, the Yankees were like, we're the better team. We should have won if we play, you know, ba 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 ba. Nonsense. You aren't the better team. The better team won last year. They beat you in the regular season. They embarrassed you, quite frankly, in the regular season. And they were the better team in a five-game series last year. This arrogance sometimes that you get out of the Yankees is tough to take. For a team that hasn't won anything in over a decade, I like a lot of guys on this team. But there is a sense of arrogance like they've accomplished something. They have accomplished nothing as far as I'm concerned in the last 10 years. Nothing. All right. What's next? What's up, JJ? This is Peter in Westchester. Congrats on the new gig, man. It's great to hear you while the sun is still out. So wishing you the best and the love of the show two episodes in. So listen, help me settle a debate here. I know you're a Dolphins fan, so you're a neutral observer. But for New York football, going forward the next four or five years, would you rather be a Giants fan or a Jets fan? And I'm saying this, I'm asking this right after Darnold trade, the Darnold trade here. So I know it's a bit murky, but I'm picking, I'm a, I'm a Giants fan, so I'm saying the Giants, some of my buddies are saying the Jets, fresh start for them. But I think you got to go Giants. But hey, happy to hear your thoughts, man. Congrats. Love the show. Good luck to you. Thanks. Well, I appreciate that. Very kind of you to say. That is a very, very tough question. Currently, it's the Giants because they have more infrastructure around the organization. I would say over the next three years, though, assuming the Jets can do it right, which is a big if. They got a number two pick for a quarterback. They got more draft picks than anybody. I mean, look at their draft this year and look at their draft next year. Loaded, loaded, loaded with picks. I'd roll with the Jets. And I think the main reason why I'd roll with the Jets, I'm not sold on Daniel Jones being a franchise quarterback for the Giants. This year, it's the third year. It's put up or shut up time. They signed Kenny Galladay. They got a big first round pick, which I would use on another playmaker because I'd be taking all the excuses out the window. I'd say, you know what? You got Galladay. I brought in Rudolph. I have Ingram. I I have Darius Slayton. Boom, I'm going to go get you Jalen Waddle. You stink, it's on you. That's how I'd approach it. I don't know if the Giants are going to look at it the same way. Michael Edge guy, 
Might go offensive lineman. I know Heifetz, our guy here at the Ringer, wants them to take an offensive lineman. How many offensive linemen are you going to keep taking? I, I mean, don't you get to a point where you're like, all right, I've taken enough offensive linemen? What are you trying to recreate? Uh, the Cowboy offensive line? Not that easy to do. Get playmakers. They need another playmaker. They're playmakers short, even with Galladay. What's next? JJ, I need you to level with me here. I need you to talk me off the ledge. It's Thursday morning. I just watched the Knicks lose by two again for what seems like the 10,000th time in a row. And I, I want to say that Tibbs is not a dumb man. He seems like a smart man. So where I'm really confused is that if he knows that the razor-thin margin between wins and losses is why he needs to play R.J. Barrett and Julius Randle a 1,000 minutes a game, why is he so content with just giving minutes away when Alfred Payton is in? I mean, last night in the first half, he was absolutely atrocious, and what do you know it, another two-point loss. If he knows that the team is limited enough where he's got to play his guys 40 minutes a game, then why is Alfred Payton even sniffing the court? All right, JJ, talk me off the bridge, baby. It's a fair critique with Alfred Payton. I'm not an Alfred Payton guy. I know he had some moments earlier in the year. Um, I'm not in love. He gets way too much playing time. I don't like seeing him in crunch time. Derrick Rose has helped this team. Derrick Rose obviously is still, you know, in a position where he's coming back from COVID. He's had some good games, but you have to wonder how that comes into play as far as minutes go. Quickly, he's been terrific. You're always a concern though with rookies. When are they going to hit that point at the end of a year where they've just hit the rookie wall? You got to keep riding quickly as far as I'm concerned, but it speaks to the fact that the Knicks still are a player short in the backcourt. And that's why I'm going to keep hammering this, hammering this, and hammering this until we hit the summertime. I think Lonzo Ball would be the perfect, perfect guy to bring into this team. What's up next? JJ, it's Anthony and Syosset. Listen, I love Aaron Judge. I do. But it's hard for me to keep defending this now. You know, I defended the injuries for years, but now it's getting ridiculous. And I always said, J.J., that I, my hope was that Aaron Judge could be my son's Don Mattingly. What Donnie was for me, Judge could be for my son. And I'm beginning to see some parallels with the injuries. What Judge's size and his obliques and his ribs are to him is what Donnie's back was to him. The difference, J.J., is Donnie gave us a good seven or eight years before this shit started. With Judge, I mean, my God. I mean, my God, I'm sorry, but it's really, really getting tough to defend this shit. I mean, these guys got to put the weights down and start doing yoga or something, but enough. Anthony and Syosset bring in the heat. And Anthony, for what it's worth, I understand that frustration. And the amazing thing about this offseason was that I heard all winter, Judge and Stanton are changing their workout routines that they are abandoning the weights, that they are, you know, prioritizing flexibility and yoga and whatever you need to do to avoid what continues to happen for these big boys. Now, it hasn't happened yet with Stanton. I'm waiting for the other shoe to drop there. And here's the big difference between Judge and Mattingly. Mattingly won a batting title. Mattingly won an MVP, and for like six or seven years, Don Mattingly was one of the premier players in all of baseball. You look at Mattingly from like 1984 to like 1988-89, he was on a Hall of Fame trajectory. 
Judge 2017 should have been the MVP. We know what happened. Cheating Astros, trash cans, buzzers, all that garbage. Forgot I could actually say bullshit, but you know, that is the uh, transition for me in going from terrestrial radio to podcast land where I actually like correct myself because it's what I did for nine years. Now I just should let it go because that's exactly what it was. It was total BS as I give you the PC answer, but that's okay. The point being is Judge was going to be an MVP in 17. 18 got hurt, fluke injury. 19, not a fluke, oblique. Last year, leg injuries. He's missing an extended period of time this year. How do you justify giving him a monster contract? How do you do it if you're the Yankees? And I know he's worth more to the team because he is, in many ways, the face of this new group of Yankees. He's likable. He's marketable. You can put him on basically every billboard in New York City. He's got that charming smile. Listen, I love the guy. I don't want to come on and trash Aaron Judge because I want him to be the MVP. Like when I think about likable Yankees, he is right at the top of my list. But the frustration with Aaron Judge and his inability to stay on the field. How can you say it's out of bounds? It's very much inbounds, very much in play. What's next? Hey, what's up, JJ? This is uh, Stuart from Brooklyn. Uh, this is regarding with the uh, the Giants draft. I would go with Slater and double down with Banks. It finally does set the O-line for years. Uh, despite all the wide receiver excitement and the Giants' propaganda of how happy they are with the current state of their offensive line, you know, one of Peart or Thomas probably won't be the long-term answer at, at offensive tackle. Slater's tape says he can be uh, one, of, one of the tackles, you know, move to guard in tandem with, with Banks uh, from, from Notre Dame. And I, and I saw a lot of him because he, he's, he's, he's a great guard. And you insert him with Zane Collins in that position, you know, that he can last until, it probably lasts until the uh, second round, and that would be a great fit for Graham's defense. Always great hearing from my main man, Stuart in Brooklyn, who is one of my regulars for years on JJ After Dark. And Stuart is clearly of the mindset of Danny Heifetz, that he wants the Giants to go and get themselves another lineman. But what I think you guys are failing to realize is their offense is not dynamic enough. I don't think Kenny Galladay by himself is going to change the offense. I need more help at wide receiver. I'll go get a lineman in the second round if I need to. That's how I'd address it. First round, though, there are going to be some top-notch receivers on the board. Where the Giants are selecting, you're going to pass up Devontae Smith and Jalen Waddell? I think that's really tough to do. What's next? Hey, JJ, loving the show so far. Wanted to chat a little Knicks Nets. Uh, you brought this up in your previous show and on the previous podcast with Bill Simmons. Um, I agree with you. I'm a Nets fan, but I agree with you that the Nets, the Knicks are still going to be the number one team in New York, no matter what happens with the Nets. However, I don't think you can discount the Nets as having this no fan base that, this, that seems to be the, the narrative happening. I think there's a huge Nets fan base in New Jersey that we've really borne up during that Jason Kidd, Vince Carter, Kenny Martin era that no one seems to talk about. And then my second point is that, yeah, I do believe that the Knicks are always going to be the number one team in Europe, but that shouldn't mean that titles for the Brooklyn Nets are going to do nothing to the fan base. I think the best example is the Islanders versus the Rangers. 
if you look at the Islanders, they've won significantly amount of more Stanley Cups than the Rangers in the past 50 years. And sure, are they still the number one team in New York? Or are they the number one team in New York? No. But I still believe that the uh, that actually caused a lot more Islanders fans to grow up and, and rise in the city in the past, you know, 40 years. And I think that the same thing can happen with the Brooklyn Nets if they start winning. Thanks. Bye. I think you hit on a fair point with your second comparison where the Islanders had that boom in the early 1980s and there were a whole lot of folks around the island and then in Brooklyn and Queens who maybe adopted the Islanders. But what you also had is people in that area and all over New York City and New York State detesting the fact that the Islanders won as much as they did and it almost emboldened the Ranger fan for when they won in 1994. Do we have a similar dynamic there with the Knicks and the Nets? Maybe we do. And I'm not saying that there are no net fans. Obviously, there are net fans. But if we're comparing the dynamics within the area, Knicks, Nets. For every one net fan I find, I'm going to find 20 Knicks fans. That's maybe more. Maybe more. Maybe my math is not great. Listen, I, I don't pretend to be a math wizard. They didn't do a good job of that at Syracuse. They got me through stats 221, and that was it. Basically, I was like, wow, I got one math class in me. I got a B minus. Let's get out and dodge, please. Please. I don't know what was worse, that or me trying to tackle astronomy freshman year. For those of you who are, you know, going to college at some point in your life, if you think astronomy is an easy science class that you can just get out of your system, take it, be done with it, and away you go, no. No, 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 no. I mean, there were a whole lot of distractions within my astronomy class that I cannot get into here on the air. Got to keep it uh, PC for the folks. Maybe I'll get some JJ College stories at a later date. But astronomy was, ooh, that's a class I'd like to have back. I passed it. In case you're wondering, I did pass astronomy at Syracuse. But it was one of those classes I was like, oh, it's going to be an easy A. I got my grade at the end of the semester. I was like, holy shit. Not pretty. Not pretty. What's next? What up, JJ? It's Jack from Queens. First time, long time. Now, I got a question for you. I'm a big Jets fan. I know you're you're a Dolphins guy. What is your level of concern now that the Panthers, they move and get Darnold? I'm starting to get a little concerned that the Patriots, what, they're sitting at 15 right now. Is there a chance they could go and get maybe a Fields, maybe a Trey Lance? I'm a little worried about it because I know whoever the Patriots take, he'll probably end up being a stud. And, yeah, I mean, they have Cam Newton right now. I'm not concerned about him. He's throwing ground balls to wide receivers. But if they can move up or maybe even stay at 15 and get their guy, I might be a little nervous. I can't lie. Let me know what you think. Have a good one. Jack, appreciate it, man. Look, you're always going to be nervous and you're always going to be concerned about what New England brings to the table because of the evil hoodie Zen master who's on the sideline for that team. He's the best coach I've ever seen in any sport in my lifetime. I didn't walk this earth when John Wooden was a head coach. I wasn't around when Vince Lombardi was doing his thing for the Green Bay Packers. Like, when I'm telling my kids and grandkids one day about the history of the NFL. I'm going to have to explain to them how tortured 
You folks have been as Jet fans, and I have been as a Miami Dolphins fan, knowing that this head coach has done nothing but dominate for 20 years. That's why it was so refreshing to see the Patriots brought back to the pack last year. I took great satisfaction in that. They're going to draft the quarterback this year. I think it's pretty obvious. They brought back Cam Newton. They're not tanking. I mean, it's, it's clear. Look at the way they're handling this offseason. They're spending money like drunken sailors. Getting better on defense, bringing in two tight ends, signing Nelson Aguilar. Belichick saying, I want to win. That's what I'm looking to do. I, I want to pass Don Shula. I want to show that I can win without Tom Brady, and I want to go from there. If you're the Jets, though, you can't be concerned about that. Don't let the 20 or 21 years get in the way. Worry about your franchise, which means getting the right quarterback, which means drafting good players and building a team the right way, which is something they haven't done in over a decade. What's next? JJ, Matt from Woodside. First time, long time. Got a question for you. Who finishes with the second most wins on the Yankees this year behind Garrett Cole? Love the show. Interested in your opinion. Talk to you later. How about Maddie and Woodside with an outstanding, outstanding Yankee question? The second most wins on the staff behind Garrett Cole. Now, last night, Jamison Tyon looked awesome. I know he gave up two solo shots. The stuff was good. The command was good. For a guy who hasn't pitched in two years, and listen, he's a tough SOB. Two Tommy John surgeries. And he beat testicular cancer. How do you not root for Tyon? But because of the way the Yankees are going to baby him, and because of the way the Yankees are going to baby Corey Kluber, I think it comes down to Herman and Montgomery. And because of the fact that Herman missed all last year because of his embarrassing behavior off the field, I'm going to say it's going to end up being the breakout year for the Yankee left-hander. Jordan Montgomery will finish with the second most wins behind Garrett Cole in the Yankee rotation. I'm sure that answer surprised a whole lot of people. But hey, got to throw a couple of curveballs your way. That was my specialty. Listen, I didn't bring the heat in high school, folks. I might be bringing it now on the mic. I definitely didn't bring the heat on the mound. Six foot, 140-something pounds, throwing maybe 65 mile an hour. But you know what? When you got that mean right hook and guys think they're going to hit it to the moon and, you know, when they connected, they did hit it to the moon. But to find a way to keep them off balance, man, that's that's how you uh, make a high school career for yourself. What's next? Hey, JJ. First time, long time. Just some thoughts on the uh, the Met game that just wrapped up about an hour ago on the Conforto of that. I'm sure it's like a ton of controversy. A lot of people calling in with their takes. I have absolutely no problem with Conforto. Slowly edging his elbow into the strike zone, getting the HVP, getting the game-winning run. My big beef, I think the thing that people aren't talking about, is that bases are loaded, bottom of the ninth, game on the line, and the bat is on his shoulders, and he gets himself in another two count. Why isn't he uh, taking more swings? Uh, anyway, that's my two cents. Curious to hear your thoughts. Appreciate it. Look, Conforto has been off to a dreadful start this year. You wonder if the contract stuff is getting in his head and maybe he's overthinking a little bit. Um, it was Bush League at the end of the game. Now, Conforto, listen, that's on the umpire. That's where the umpire has to say, he leaned his elbow over the strike zone. He's out. 
How they can't review that is beyond me. They review everything in sports now. Everything. To the extreme. The end of a basketball game now, over the final two minutes in the NBA and college, they zap so much out of the enjoyment, fun, whatever you want to call it, with some of these stoppages and some of these reviews. It gets to a point where it's like, enough, just let them play. Enough. So we review everything known to man, and yet in baseball, a guy clearly takes his elbow over the strike zone, leans into a pitch, not supposed to be able to do that, and we can't review it. It would bother me if I'm the Marlins, if I'm the Mets, take the win and get the hell out of there. If you're Conforto, bring some uh, body armor for Saturday. Because if I were managing a team, you'd be getting one in the ass. 100%. What's next? JJ, what's up, brother? Congrats on the Ringer gig. This is JK out in Sayville. Wanted to get your thoughts on a New York sports story that's been buried the past couple of days. Charles Oakley coming out and saying the Knicks asked him to have his number retired, and he declined, and it's too cheap to buy him off and get him back on the Knicks side. couple of things. Is it true, or is it Oakley causing more ruckus? And two, does he deserve to have his number retired? Best of luck, brother. JK, I appreciate it. Nobody loves Charles Oakley more than me. I was so disturbed when that incident happened in Madison Square Garden a couple of years ago, and I was Team Oakley through and through. This is where I got to give you some real talk, though. Charles Oakley does not deserve to have his number retired. And I'm one of these guys that is a stickler for this sort of stuff. And it bothers me with the Yankees. The Yankees, as storied and his historic and all the pomp and circumstance that they bring to the table, they got too many numbers out of Monument Park. Charles Oakley is a fan favorite. It is impossible to know the accuracy of this story. Who knows at this point? I'm, I, I got to be perfectly frank. I'm exhausted by the whole Oakley-Knicks dynamic. I'm over it. I, 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 I'm over it. I've wasted up so much energy over the last few years that I can't like find myself back to rusted 1,000% into it. I'm not. I love getting on the owner. It's easy. It's fun. And over the last 20 years, you've been right to do so. He stayed out of the way with this front office so far and with Tibbs. I just hope it continues. Oakley, from his play on the court, not worthy of being retired. Very good Nick. Not an all-time Nick. Patrick Ewing is an all-time Nick. Clyde Frazier is an all-time Nick. Willis Reed is an all-time Nick. Charles Oakley is a fan favorite. Very good career. Should not have his jersey retired. Last but not least, who's on the horn? JJ, I love how hard this Knicks team is playing, but I just wish they could close out some of these games against quality opponents just twice this week. They had the Nets beat, weren't able to close it out, and then they also had the Celtics last night. Looked like they were going to win that game, weren't able to close it out down the stretch. However, really do like the way R.J. Barrett has been playing for the next year, really think he's taking a big step and think he's going to be a good player and a good building block for the team in the future. Real quick, just want to transition over to college hoops. I know you're a big Syracuse guy. As a big team Hall fan, just wanted to say uh, thanks to you and Jimmy Beheim for uh, giving the Pirates a nice gift in the transfer market in Kadari Richmond. Just want to hear your thoughts on, on 
on Richmond. I know he's a big-time prospect coming out of Brooklyn. Really loved his tape. But as a Q's fan, just want to see kind of how you feel about losing him to uh, Team Hall. All right, man. Have a good one. Yeah, I was bummed out about Kadari Richmond. Kadari Richmond, I thought, had the perfect prototype to be a Syracuse guard in that 2-3 zone for three to four years. 6-5, anchor in the D, shades of Michael Carter-Williams. Super bummed he ended up transferring. And in case anybody is wondering, if you're listening to New York, New York for the third time, newsflash, I bleed Syracuse orange. I am the class of 2010. I did all sorts of crazy Radio nonsense up there. I, I love Syracuse. I also love talking about Syracuse. So I'm glad that we got a Q Seton Hall tie in there with our last voicemail. Richmond would be a good player. I don't know why he transferred from Syracuse, quite frankly. And that's not even with me, you know, pounding the chest over my alma mater. I was hearing he was going to go to Kentucky or Florida State. No knock on Seton Hall. There is a big drop off from Kentucky to Seton Hall. My thought was going to be that he end up starting over Joe Girard anyway. The good news for the Cuse, though, even though they lose Richmond, they got a couple of transfers. They got themselves a five-star recruit. And the old man is still at it. It is amazing. He will coach that team until, well, he can no longer coach the team. It's really as simple as that. We got some gambling stuff coming up as we get you ready for the weekend of the Masters. And for those of you wondering how to handicap baseball, because I hate betting baseball. It is infuriating. I hate laying super high vigs. I always try to figure out strategies to go through the year to pick my spots. So I figured I'd welcome in one of my buddies who actually likes betting baseball more than I do. Sam Panianovich of Nesson will join us. It is New York, New York, jam-packed show. Little extra pep in my step. What else is new? Baseball's back. My golf swing was a little better. Weather is beautiful in the big city, and life is good. We're coming right back. So I wanted to welcome this guy to the show because we met out in Vegas. We hit it off. We made a ton of money. And I was dancing with Syracuse hitting backdoor covers. He laughed in my face when the White Sox smoked the Yankees and I met him out in Chicago. And now he's a lifelong friend. And now he's moved to Boston. So we introduced to New York, New York, one of my longtime guests. He's now of Nesson fame to talk masters, betting strategies, baseball, which I hate betting, Sam Panionovich. Sammy boy, what's happening, brother? Oh, yeah. I got some whiskey for you, too. I just got off Oh, even better. You salute me on the new show. I like that. Well, and this glass actually says get wet, which is... Oh, boy. Terminology for well, winning go. a bet, the, you know, when you jump into the pool. The beak is alive, baby. The yeah, beak is wild. I'll never forget you in Vegas. I think you had the orange plus 13 against Duke. And Duke had to be, I don't know, they had to be up 11 or something like that. And then they got it to 15. And I believe we had a couple cocktails. I believe with five seconds to go, one of the orange banged a three from the top to lose by Frank 12. Howard, if you want to be specific. <laughs> Frank Howard banged the three. And basically, in case you're wondering, folks, Sam can attest to this. I did like a lap around the Cosmopolitan Sportsbook, like high-fiving everybody. Even though my alma mater got smoked by Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, Sam, that's the beauty of the wagering element, bro. That made my night. The Orange, they weren't good enough to win, 
but they were good enough to put a couple extra bucks in my pocket. And I think you were the only guy in the joint that didn't have the favorite. So it was, it was an incredible moment. And uh, like I said, it's something I'll never forget, but I am very happy for you. Cheers to you. Uh, continued success. And this beats me calling into your show at like, you know, 11 o'clock at night. Like we used to. Oh, you ain't kidding. I mean, listen, I think for the audience now being able to hear us in the morning and the afternoon and at night, that's what it's all about. Now, Mr. Nesson, Mr. Handicapping Expert himself, you're doing a lot of stuff now on the home of the Boston Red Sox. Okay. Betting baseball. I hate it. It's a grind. It feels like already now it's aged like 10 years off of my life because it's just it, it, day in and day out. It's just, it's minutia, bro. So for anybody who's out there that, you know, is just getting off the NCAA tournament, that's finishing up the football season, that doesn't bet baseball often, what would be the biggest piece of advice, Sam, you would give that better if they want to have some fun and get involved day to day in the baseball season? Juice kills. Now, I would set a personal limit on how much chalk you're going to lay because, as we know, it rolls over and it adds up. If you're laying minus 140, minus 150 on a regular basis, you have to do so much better against the number because it's hard enough, JJ, to beat minus 110. You know, if you go 53% in buckets or football, you're over the top right there. Like you're in the green, but barely. If you start laying 140, 150, 160, if you're laying the Yankees against the Orioles, you're laying $2 or 250, you have to minimize your juice always. And I think it's important to take more pluses than minuses. You know, like I love my plus 10s and plus 15s and plus 120s. But more importantly, if you're looking at a big favorite, like for example, the Yankees, if the Yankees are at home and they're facing the Rays, the Red Sox, Rather than lay 250, I'm going to take that and cut it down to a run and a half. I'm going to lay the run line rather than lay 200, 250. Now I'm, I'm plus 15 or I'm plus 20. I always try and change those minuses into pluses because it's so much easier in the long run to beat it when you minimize the juice. That's a great point. You look at Wednesday night's Yankee game. They end up losing in extra innings. You would have been laying two to one with Jamison Tyon if you laid a minus 200. You play him one and a half. Maybe it's 110, maybe it's 115, maybe getting plus money for all we know. Would you suggest, though, Sam, with those one and a half bets to only go that way if we're talking about a road team? Or do you feel okay even if a home team's only getting, let's say, eight at bats, give or take? No, I'm not too worried about it. And I think it's all reflected in the price. I mean, bookmakers are aware you only get potentially eight at bats. So it's factored into the number. Uh, maybe it's plus 130 instead of plus 120. I mean, every cent matters in this racket, as you know. But, I, you know, most games don't land one. Uh, if you have a 20-game sample size, I would argue that the favorite wins by one, what, three times, maybe. Even that sounds... That sounds like a lot in a 20 game sample size. I feel like the favorite wins by one, maybe once or twice. So look, if it happens to you, that's fine. But I would much rather you lose at plus 15 or plus 20 than lose at minus 280. Because if you lose one bet at minus 280, you have to win three just to pretty much break even. You win three, you're up 300. You lose one, you're down 280. So you're up 20 bucks, but you won three and one. That The juice kills. That's, that's paramount to understand. It's a great lesson if you're trying to bet baseball. Okay, we didn't talk before season totals. What was your favorite over? What was your favorite under? Uh, let me guess here. Are you all aboard the Cubs under like 78, 78 half wins? Because to me, that team is going to stink. They're going to blow it up. Baez is going to get traded maybe. Bryant's going to get traded. 
I don't really love anybody in the division, but that was the under I thought Sam Panionovich might have been putting a good couple of shekels on. Am I, was my read right or not exactly? I shot a text out to Vegas once the number popped at Circa. I think Circa put up 79 and a half, and I was like, hey, we got to hammer this shit now. We got to do it. <laughs> we got to do it now. They can't hit. They can't hit. They had, through six games, they had 21 hits. And I saw their game. We do this on a Thursday. They went under again today. They are six and one of the under. The pitching is going to fall apart because they only have one guy that's any good, and that's Kyle Hendricks. I mean, Jake Arrieta was good five years ago, and they bring him back because they're desperate. I don't believe the pitching staff can carry them through the summer. If this team isn't afloat by June 1, they're dead. They can't hit, like I said. I don't like their manager. I don't like his situation, rather, because their three best players are all pissed. Bryant, Baez, and Rizzo, they all want to be there long-term, but the, the franchise won't commit. And it's just, it's a team that could implode from the inside, but they can't hit. They don't drive in runs. They don't get on base. And they have one major league starter in the rotation. I don't care what their record is the first week of April. Let's revisit this and re-rack it May 1. And let's look at how bad they are June 1. And I'm with you. They're going to trade Chris Bryant. They're going to they're gonna move for the future. They're going to start rebuilding. I went under 79 and a half. And then my favorite over, uh, good start so far. But again, small sample size, Kansas City Royals. Uh, Ooh, went over okay. a pretty good number. I, like I think they're going to win 70 games, 73 games or so. So we went over in KC and under on the north side of Chicago. We got the Masters this weekend. Um, some of the odds to me were just totally out of whack. Like Spieth, for example. Everybody got on him because of what he did last week. Nobody wins on a tour back-to-back weeks. I didn't like Spieth. Everybody betting Justin Thomas. I love Justin Thomas. Nobody wins the players and then goes and wins the Masters. Um, your general strategy, though, for betting the Masters, do you like going with the heads-up matchups? Do you like playing three ball? Do you like taking guys to finish top five, top 10? How do you normally play the Masters or a golf tournament for that matter? Well, I lost my first Masters bet. I went no hole in one, which I already lost. Tommy Fleetwood stuck one. He put an ace in today. Unfortunate, but, by the way. I wish I was able to do that on the golf course, Sam. Not, not so I long. got plus 130. You know, like everybody was betting That's a good hole bet. in one. I'm not going to kill you on that bet. I would have no, made that bet too. A, if I saw that, I would have made it. You think I'm laying 130 for a hole in one? You're out of your freaking mind. But the, the golfers are too talented now, and we know that, and I should have known better. But no, I'm a matchup guy, and I like to fade the guys that have climbed the betting boards. I mean, remember Jordan Spieth a month ago was 50 or 60 to one. So his rise up the betting boards, when you think about it from a matchup standpoint, it created value on everybody else. I took Patrick Reed head to head with Spieth. I got Reed at plus 110. I took John Rahm at a pickup. Uh, even money. I took Raman even money. And then I think I had Patrick Cantley at like plus 105. But because Spieth was 9, 10, 11, 12 to 1 to win the whole thing, and, and it elevated him up the betting boards, it made the price on everybody else in the head-to-head matchups a lot juicier. So you're sort of fading his ascension. He's a great golfer, but he's being priced like a perennial contender. And he hasn't been a perennial contender in a long time. So his value, and I'm using quotation marks around value, his value up the betting boards created, ironically enough, value on everybody else. So that's what I did this year. I'm invested on Reed. We talked about this on the podcast a couple of days ago. Got him at like 25 or 27. Yeah, guys, so I don't like him. He's a jerk. I don't give a shit. I don't, I don't care. care either. If he wins, Sam, what do I care? And the guy loves playing that tournament. This tournament in general, do you normally like guys, I know I do, that play the course? Like, that matters to me. Like, Bubba Watson, for example, hasn't been great the last couple of years. This tournament, 
He normally plays well. Do you put a lot of stock in that or not so much? I think at this course you have to at Augusta National. I think, you know, right course, right form is always important. You know, it's a lot different than the John Deere Invitational and, you know, Bufu, Illinois. You know, I don't think the course history is that important there, but there's something to be said about Augusta. It's tough. You know, if if you don't have success there, it's hard to go back to you. But you know this as well as I do, and I appreciate you giving me a softball here. You know, the best golf bettors in the world, they're not throwing these outright darts. They're not betting on Morikawa at 30 to 1 or this guy at 80 and that guy at 120. They are finding the proper head-to-head. It's easier to beat one golfer than it is to beat 80. And if you don't understand that, you're not paying attention. Do you have a guy that you will be riding? Forget about just to win the tournament. In these head-to-head matchups now as we go through the weekend, is there one guy when you're going through the lines tonight, tomorrow, Saturday, Sunday, where you say, no matter what, I'm, I'm on this guy, I'm betting him in whatever matchup I can find? Yeah, and I would also look, too, at, you know, the outright market. I know you don't have the best number, especially with a guy who shot two under on the first day, but I went on Reed at 30 and 35 to 1. Now, he was three under. Better number than me, by the way. I'm jealous of you. Better number than me. He bogeyed 18, but I I think in some weird roundabout way, that sort of gives you – a slightly better number going into round two because if he's three under, his price is obviously, you know, a little bit different than it is at two under. So I'm not too concerned about how he finished. I don't worry about a bogey on 18. I look at how he played for the first 17. I would look at him in the day two matchups. And also you could probably find him still at 20 or maybe 18 to one to win the whole thing. I still don't hate it. It's not the best number, but it's still a good one. Sammy, you got to enlighten the ringer audience now on our good pal, the bartender. So people probably listening, if they haven't listened to JJ After Dark, if they haven't listened to Sam all these years, Chicken Dinner Podcast, Ness and all the stuff he's doing, there is a bartender that Sammy knows well that is probably one of the worst gamblers in the history of gambling. So is the bartender throwing in any golf bets? Is he betting any baseball, NBA? I Sam, you have to let New York, New York know. So... If you follow Sam on Twitter, he talks to this bartender. Bartender gives pick. If you fade him, you're going to have a pretty good track record. Ain't that right, Sam? In the NFL this year, he was 11 and 23. Ooh! You can Ooh. pay rent. You can pay rent fading this I guy. I might have and bought it's... Kate's engagement ring if I was fading the bartender every week with that money. That would be nice. He got so bad that people were asking me, you know, what does he think about this game or what does he know about that game? And I'm so like, you want leads. Not... People are getting greedy. They want leads <laughs> from the bartender. Yeah, you go, you know, eleven and twenty three. You don't have you don't have the luxury of being able to a la carte this shit. You know, I mean. He makes 34 picks and wins 11, you know, and people want more, but that's, you know, the life we live, I guess. He's so bad. He'll find, you know, the squarest two and a half point road favorite on the Sam, Sunday how about afternoon. The Dolphin, how about this one, folks? Bartender in week 16 had the Dolphins laying the two and a half for three against the Raiders. That was the epic Fitzpatrick game with the face mask, you know, the, the immaculate reception. They kick the field goal, they win by one. My team wins. Bartender, not so lucky. He's that just, sums up the bartender. He's so bad. And it's you see the text come across and you know. Like, you know that this is going to be... 
he, he's the type of guy where if he, if he could pick a survivor pool every single week, I know if you lose, you're out, but he would lose 14 weeks out of 17. Like that's how bad he is. And it's never, it's never the right favorite. Like he never lays Kansas city minus nine when they win by 18 or whatever. He likes to lay Kansas city. The, the market opens three. He lays six and a half on Monday night. You know, like he has no conception of, you know, right team, right price. He doesn't understand line movement. He's just a gem. And the day that that guy kicks the bucket, I will be extremely sad because he will be taking money out of my pocket. And I know he's one of uh, one of your favorites because it's hard to be good, but it's even harder to be bad in this racket. He is the gift that keeps on giving. Sammy, for everybody out there here in Ring of Land, where can they find you? Twitter, your handle, all that good stuff. Yeah, just go to Twitter at SP Shoot. Those are my initials, SP, and then shoot, like shoot a basketball. And you can find all this stuff there. And uh, I can't wait to get you back on the pod. And I can't wait to see your ass at Fenway when the Sox and the Yanks get together, man. It's going to be a wild season in Boston. And for what it's worth, Sammy, my boss, the great Bill Simmons, is on the Red Sox over 80 and a half. I've heard like actually, Bill Simmons. I've heard of that guy. Yeah, I've heard who's of him. he? You know, who's he? He's. I think he's done all right for himself. Just saying. Uh, I love him. I, I don't think that eight and a half with the Red Sox is going to be a winner. Just saying. Well, I they, they got swept that. by the Orioles. But I, look, I think it's going to be, that's going to be one of those bets where it's going to come down to the final week of the season. They're going to be close. They're going to be close to 80. I think they sneak over, but that's going to be, that's going to be probably one of those win totals where they're going to need three wins with seven games to go. And the rest is up to them. Sammy, let's go fat man, baby. Let's go Patrick Reed. Let's cash it. Love you, kid. Congrats. There you go. That's Sam Panionovich, chicken dinner, Nesson, man of many talents, and when in doubt, always, always fade the bartender. New York, New York, episode three is in the books. Leave the voicemails. We're back Sunday night. We'll have all sorts of good stuff in store. Master's reaction. We will have reaction to the Yankees and the Mets. We'll see if Tampa continues to be a house of horrors for the Yankees. Remember, the number is 917-382-1151. That's 917-382-1151. First week in the books. JJ out. Enjoy the weekend. Be good, everybody.